On Racing HQ, Monday's Experts, studying the form of racing's characters. Monday's Experts, he'd have always got the good oil, but you can't put a bet on at the finish of a race. Welcome back to Racing HQ, five minutes past 11 and time for this week's Monday's Expert. And this week's guest is someone that I've long admired as a businesswoman through the success of Star Thoroughbreds, who uh, many of us would know through the feats of Sebring, um, of course, uh, Thessio a little while ago, and more recently, Invincibella, Fox Play, and Espiona, the likes. The list goes on. Uh, and our guest is uh, is Denise Martin, who many consider to be the doyen of racehorse syndicates. It's my pleasure to welcome Denise to Monday's Expert. Good morning, Denise. Oh, hi, Anthony. Gosh, that's a build-up. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I, I know you've recently came back from, from the UK and uh, perhaps a little bit jet-lagged. How are you feeling? Oh, look, I'm actually really good. Um, for some reason, I don't know, I picked up a, a bug at the end of last week, which has given me a bit of a dodgy throat and voice, so I probably sound worse than I am, but I hope I'll get through it fine. I'm sure. Not too much coughing, I hope. We'll we'll push on. Um, Many of our listeners will recognise your horses in the famous purple and and white silks, Uh, but we'd like to know a little bit more about you and and your background and how you got started with with Star Thoroughbreds. Um, I'll start by asking, what was your first memory of a a horse or or the races? Well, look, my dad, um, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago, was a great sportsman in Tassie. And I grew up as a young person going to the races with him occasionally. His chosen sports were Australian rules, football and cricket. But his late father had had a love of horses and racing and knew some quite well-known racing people in Victoria. So as a very young kid, we used to, my sister and I would listen to the races and watch races. Television coverage wasn't what it was, what it is now, obviously. But I knew a little bit about racing, never remotely thinking it was going to be a career. Just loved horses through my dad, really. And I suppose my first um, hero horse, as it were, was a horse that dad bought from Victoria, from the late George Hanlon, great trainer, and called Algonon. Mm-hmm. He'd been a Mooney Valley Gold Cup winner, came to Tasmania. I remember I was about 16 at the time, 16 years of age, and I recall that mum and dad's racing colours were cerise and blue. So I remember once, um, very young young age, I went out to buy myself some pink and blue clothes because I thought it was the done thing. You had to wear clothes in accordance with the, races, <laughs> with the horse's colours. Clearly, years later, they don't do that anymore. Yeah. But um, he won a number of races in Tasmania, and I thought it was a great thrill, I remember. So I guess that was my first memory. But like a lot of people, you know, as you become more interested in racing, you follow the great horses. And, you know, I I guess initially my hero horse, like, you know, many of the racing population and those interested in racing was Kingston Town. I just thought he was amazing. So a local horse for me, but um, nationally, obviously, the great Kingston Town. So that was that was that was it in terms of your family involvement. Um, you, your mother and father were, were hobby owners. Did they have a lot of horses at that time, Denise? No, no, not at all. Dad had only one or two mm. horses in Tassie, Anthony. Um, he was still involved in sport in many ways. So racing wasn't a you know a major hobby. It was just a sort of passing interest. Sure. But because the horses were very successful at home. Uh, you know, you um, certainly like going to the races and watching winners, and we did. So that's why I guess that horse was my early memory. And then you start to take an interest in, uh, in the significant horses nationally and, you know, watch the really good horses come along. And were you just a race goer through your teens and, say, into your, your early 20s? You'd just go socially? Well, not, not, not really. Um, I had a career 
involved initially in the hotel business mm -hmm. overseas and back in Australia. And I found when I came back to live here quite some time ago, I became more interested in racing as a hobby. Mm -hmm. And I remember I'd go to Randwick and I'd sit in the grandstand. I didn't think at any time that I was a foremanist or anything like that, but I just used to like to watch the horses. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, you know, what was it about this particular horse that I liked and which particular horse, you know, for me just stood out on type and attitude and demeanor, everything. Um, I wasn't ever a punter. I just loved watching the horses. And I didn't at that time either ever think it would be a career uh, because I had a very successful, fortunately, very successful career in the hospitality industry. So racing was just a passing interest, if you like. Um, on a Saturday and I remember once I went to Flemington in the middle of July and I was one of about five people in the grandstand and I kept thinking to myself, you know, if you're this keen to go <laughs> to the races in Victoria at Flemington in July and not go to the MCG and watch a football match, maybe racing's, you know, more in, in your blood than you think about it. And I remember when I finally decided to move on from the hotel industry and start my own business, thinking Remember that day you went to Flemington? <laughs> so sometimes it's there in the background and you don't even know it. That was perhaps a, a watershed moment for you by the sounds of it. It was. Yeah. yeah, I think it was. Tell us a little bit about your background in the hospitality industry. I know you, you said you worked overseas in, in five-star hotels and you worked at the Sofitel in Melbourne for, for some time, I, I know. But you said you worked overseas. Tell us a little bit about your history. Well, um, way back when I started working, I was a school teacher, believe it or not. Oh, right. And I loved it really very much. I only taught for a couple of years and went to live in England. And when I got to, to London... Um, I decided that maybe I wouldn't teach in the UK, but I was just there on a working holiday. I didn't, I wasn't looking for development of a new career. A friend of mine worked in a major London hotel, and she said, well, if you'd like to come and work here, you know, you'd be very welcome. I did. And it was really the beginning of a hotel career that took me to a whole variety of places, um, including South Africa and then back to Australia. And I loved hotels very much. It was um it was a great industry. The hotel in Melbourne that I worked at before I established my business was then the Regent. And it was the hotel where the vintage crop owners and Dermot Weld, the trainer, right. stayed when they came out and won the Melbourne Cup. And when I was in the UK last week, in fact, 10 days ago, I went to Dermot Weld's stables. How and I looked at him and I said, um, I'm sure you don't remember me. And he looked at me and I said, the Regent in Melbourne. And and maybe he was being polite, but he just extended his hand and said, I remember you well. And he said the gentleman who managed the hotel was very good to us at the same time. So it was um, it was just amazing to have a look at his stable. He just had great success at Royal Ascot with a three-year-old filly who's probably the dominant filly in the UK. And we um, we just had a bit of a chat about vintage crop and his time there and you know, in Australia, etc. And it's just nice all these years later to go back and see the person that, you know, gave you such a thrill when all the connections of vintage crops stayed at the hotel. How incredible. That's really a full circle moment to, to meet. Uh, mm. It'd be 40, if not 45 years, maybe a little longer than that. It was, I think it was 1990, it was about 30 years. 30 years. It was 30, 30 years. yeah. Um, yeah. Tell us, Denise, uh, when you made that decision to leave um, a, a, a senior role in, in, in hotels to um, to take out your, your syndicator's licence, was was that a risk at the time? Um, yeah, tell us about that decision that when you made that. Look, it was a huge risk because, A, I didn't know if I could do it, mm. number one. 
Number two, I didn't think the industry would offer me, you know, too many um, too many pats on the back and, and offerings to help because it was, you know, seen as an odd thing to do for, um, you know, a mature woman in a, in a successful role in the hospitality industry to move into something completely different. But I'd felt that if I applied the principles of my, you know, business acumen um, in hospitality to racing, I felt if I could work with a trainer who would help me initially select the horses, I would look after the people. And I thought the service aspect of, you know, syndication was really important. Success is obviously significant because it gives you the profile and that's why people think that, you know, you've got an idea, you know what you're doing, which is clearly you know, paramount in any business. But I just thought that it would be something that I could consider. And at the time, it's... Um, yeah, it's quite amusing for some of the people who know the history that when I was in Melbourne at the Regent at the time, I thought I'd become a marriage celebrant, as bizarre as it sounds, but I thought it would be lovely to be involved in an area where people are always happy. Mm. And I worked on the basis that if you go to a wedding with a marriage celebrant and people aren't happy, things aren't getting off to a good start. <laughs> so I no. thought, how lovely to go home every day and you've had a happy day at work. And I applied to the Attorney General's Department at the time and said, this is what I want to do. But I couldn't, um, they couldn't grant me uh, a marriage celibate's license at the time because I wanted to stay at the hotel at least for a while to see if I liked the other business. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't do both. It was seen as a conflict of interest. So it was sort of, I guess, you know, a trigger that said, well, maybe you've got to do something completely different. And that's when syndication became an option for me. And I approached a couple of very well-known trainers in Melbourne who thought it was an odd thing to do because they knew me as you know, a senior person in the hospitality industry. But I was keen to continue to pursue my, my you know, my thoughts. So I applied to the um, relevant, relevant authorities at the time. And it took about three or four months for the licence to come through. And I remember, very funny thing, Anthony, when I left the region, it was a Saturday morning, and the Rolling Stones were checking in. And the, the GM, the general manager of the hotel, very kindly had said to me, if you would like to stay in the hotel a couple of days before you go, that would be fantastic. You're welcome to. I said, that would be really good. So I stayed in the hotel in the region about three or four days. And as I was leaving, driving out of the driveway with, a, I don't know, it seemed like a stack of luggage, the concierge said to me, you know Mick Jagger's about an hour away from checking in? And I said, yes. He said, I don't know who's got more luggage, you or him. <laughs> and I said, I'm counting on it being me. <laughs> so I came to Sydney. It was March, I remember. And bought my first couple of horses way back then and didn't know how to photograph a horse but by that stage I'd formed the association with Gay which was just remarkable you know we're a bit like Thelma and Louise at the time you know two women sort of forging their own places in the in the racing industry and you know her story is legendary, legendary globally she's just an amazing human being remarkable trainer and we had 20, 21 years together very successfully, and I just loved it. So sometimes you've just got to make the decision to give something a try. And as they say, you know, a lot of success people have said over the years, make the decision to go for it and just go for it. Mm. Was it a difficult process to get your license back then? I mean, I've run a small syndication business myself. It's it's a, a bit, you know, there's a bit of paperwork to get through to, to get your license, and it can be time-consuming and a bit challenging mm. at times. And, and also, I, I wanted to ask... 
like these days, I mean, back then there wouldn't have been too many syndicators. We're talking thirty years ago, Denise. I mean, you mm. really pioneered it for the for the rest of us. And, well, there and... were two very successful people at the time: um, the late Harry Lawton in Sydney, mm-hmm. and in Melbourne, a lady still functioning, um, and and you know, very successful person called Shelley Hancocks. Mm-hmm. Shelley was in Melbourne, and Harry was here, and I, I didn't know a lot of the processes involved at the time, but I knew what was required. And I said to a a friend of mine, a media person in Melbourne, I want to apply for my licence and I want to do it sufficiently well so that there are no suggestions. I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing. And the funny thing was, I remember I was in Launceston in Tassie. I hadn't left the region at that time. Um, Gay was just starting training. And she had a horse in Launceston called the Loco that she took down the Launceston Cup in the very early days of her training. I flew across from the Regent Hotel in Melbourne to be with Gay and her owners when the Loco ran. And as the horses were leaving the mounting yard that day, I got a, um, I heard a, a PA address, you know, asking that I come to the secretary's office. Well, it's like the airport, you know, if you're late to the flight, they call you and you feel really embarrassed because the whole place knows that you're running late or if you're in a public place and they call your name, do you worry that there's something wrong? And I remember thinking, gosh, I hope there's nothing wrong with mum and dad. Mm. I got to the secretary's office and there was a message to call the accountant in Melbourne who was applying for the licence for me. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at the number thinking, well, this will either be the beginning of the rest of my life or I'll have to go to plan B. I phoned him and he said, your licence has been approved. So I went back to the mountain yard because only Gay and one or two other people knew I was applying for the license. Mm-hmm. I told her quietly that, you know, it had been approved and she shouted as <laughs> in her way, oh, we'll have champagne all around. And I said, well, I haven't told anybody yet. And I remember the loco ran second and the horse that won the race that day on the Launceston Cup was called Free Beer. Well, there you go. We got to have the champagne isn't, later. Isn't that funny? <laughs> um, back in those days when you first started then, like mo- most... Most syndicators these days, with the with the sales or the auction houses, work on work on credit. Did you did you have credit? Did you have to spend your own money to buy horses straight up? No, not initially. I didn't because I wasn't buying very many. I think I went to the Melbourne sale uh, straight away and I bought one. I came to a Sydney sale and I bought one. Then they were, um, you know, they were taken up very quickly mm-hmm. because it was quite a new thing. There were six owners involved in the horses at that time. So I remember the first horse by Kenmare was called French Roulette and the second horse was called, I can't remember now, but not an expensive horse that I bought in Sydney. So no, you know, I mean, these days, if you've got a long track record with the companies, they will help you. But initially you had to basically, um, I think they had to be paid for within about 10 days. So, mm. you know, I just got my, myself together very quickly and made sure that the ownership ownership groups came together and and you know many many years later with many more horses you know things can be different in some cases now but there was always a lot of pressure and still is mm. you know once you've taken the chance to buy the horses that you have to find the people to fill in ownership groups pretty quickly mm. you um you start you must have started successfully then quite quickly because I know it took you sort of four years to claim your first group one winner with Dan Glisser but did you hit the ground running with those first few horses Denise Look, they were a mixed bag, I guess, Anthony. Some were okay. Um, you know, some won a few races. I remember 
it was suggested that maybe I should buy a couple of tried horses from New Zealand. And the first winner I ever had was with a horse called Sluzam that I bought um, out, out of New Zealand. And he had his first start I remember at Gosford. I remember I went to the races at Gosford just as I was going to Derby Day at Flemington because it was just, you know, we're going to the races. Mm. I didn't even think, hang on, this is not, you know, this is not Rose Hill or Ramsey. But the horse won and we seemed to have about 50 people involved with friends and family. And it was very thrilling. And I had a couple of other tried horses from New Zealand who did the same thing whilst we were waiting for the yearlings to get up and, you know, yep. to, to race as older horses. So when Dan Visser won the Princess Series and our first um, Group 1 winner with the Flight Stakes, it was really exciting and it was only then that I got to understand just what Group 1 racing was about and success at the highest level was about. And, of course, it's, you know, it's very addictive. You want more and more and... It's hard to do because there are so few Group 1 races in the country in a year. And what did that do for your, your business after that Group 1 success of Dan Glisser in 1999 in the, the Princess Series, the flight stakes in particular? Did that take your business to the next level after that success? Well, yes, it did. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that, you know, if you have the Group 1 win, automatically the next horse you buy yep. at the next sale is going to be, you know, a similar performer. Um you know, she was a terrific mare. She was sold to Jerry Harvey, um, although she was, wasn't instantly a great brood mare. Some of her daughters became decent brood mares in time. And, you know, we waited for quite some time for the next very high level uh, horse to produce at Group 1 level. But, you know, in the interim, we had horses like Stowaway and, you know, a number of other really decent performers that won 8, 10, 9, 10, 11 races and half a million. They didn't have the profile of Group 1 winners, but they were doing the job on a regular basis. And then, you know, in the mid-2000s, suddenly hit the jackpot with Fezio and Sebring racing at the same time. You know, a five-time Group 1 winner and a, you know, a, a classic two-year-old golden slipper winner that, uh, you know, wins all but six of it, six starts and wins five, five races and misses out on the, the, the six by just a centimetre. So... It happens in waves, I don't know why, but, you know, you go through a period when you can't get the Group 1 winner and then suddenly they're coming in a rush. Mm. Thessio was my next horse to, to ask about, as you mentioned. Uh, $120,000 purchase as a yearling. He won 11 races, $3.2 million in prize money, five-time Group 1 winner, including a Group 1 Epsom. Back rubber on top of the rise, got away. A length and three-quarters, two lengths, kill it, and followed by Galantes Thessio and then Rahib. They come down to the distance of the 200. Bag rubber taken on by the stablemate Thessio, and then comes Galantes Thessio, bridges the gap on back. Bank Robber, Thessio races to Bank Robber, hits the front and Thessio wins the Epsom. Bank Robber second, Galantes third, then all silent judge Musket followed by God's hand. What are your memories of, of that race in particular? You quinelled it that year with, with yes. Bank Robber. What are your memories of Thessio and that, that race oh. in particular? Well, look, I loved um, Bank Robber. He was just a fantastic horse. Uh, I loved Thessio, I loved them both. But Thessio was amazing. You know, winning five group ones and then he defeated Viewed in the Randbeck. But um, Epsom Day was extraordinary because it had been wet and I didn't think Bank Robber would really go so well on the wet track. But um, when he kicked away a bit at the top of the rise, I thought, oh, and I said to Gay, Bank Robber's going to win this. And then she dug me in the ribs and said, the other horse is getting, just getting warmed up. And I said, what other horse? And she looked at me <laughs> you know, and again gave me a dig in the ribs and said, there's the other. And then when he you know shot clear i was really pleased because zach of course hadn't gone to hong kong yet or i beg your pardon he might have gone to hong kong but had come back 
to ride him because he rode him when he won uh, the Dulcify in his first start and he'd had four or five, maybe even six starts perhaps before he won a race. And when he won the Dulcify, Zach returned to scale and said to the owners and me, I know you want him to be winning races now, but he's going to develop into a really good horse for you, just give him the time. Obviously he did. So, you know, it's hard to win 11 races. And mm. when he won the McKinnon on Derby Day, you know, that was just a special event because... You know, you want to win a race on important days or you hope to win a race on important days. And to be there on Derby Day and see him in the McKinnon so well, he was just amazing. Nash just had the perfect relationship with the horse. And, you know, he was competing against really good Group 1 weight-for-age horses that Chris was training at the time. He had a lot of sterling battles with, you know, Rangi Rangdu and horses like that. So he was just... People say, what's your favourite horse? And I say, well... When you've got a horse like Sebring that won the Spiffer and won all but one of his starts, became a very successful stallion. You know, clearly he has to be your favourite. But Ezio was just one of those warriors everybody hopes to have at some time. Yeah, warrior, that's the best way to describe him. He, he had 40 starts, 11 wins, five-time Group 1 winner, but he was second in three more. And he won $3.2 million in prize money. We're talking 2008, 2009. That'd be worth probably eight, perhaps ten million these days, Denise. I know. Yeah, look, it would. I said to somebody only the other day, Anthony, that we spoke about Persio, and I said, isn't it amazing when you look at the prize money now with all the races that he won? He'd easily be seven or eight, I think, and as you said, he could well be ten million. Easily. Pretty terrific horse. The horse you're probably best remembered for more recently is Sebring, of course, who won a golden slipper for you in 2008, the same year as that Epsom with uh, with Thessio. Cheese Mina joined in front by Anatomica. Plenty of room for Augusta Proud. Rian and Sugar Babe down the outside from Sidereus. And then a gap to Sebring. They come down to the 200 marker. Cheese Mina, Sugar Babe on the outside. Augusta Proud, Anatomica and Sebring went off the fence. And Von Costa to Heroes flying. Von Costa to Hero and Sebring. Sebring just the leader from Von Costa to Hero. Sebring or Von Costa to Hero on a tidy with Portillo third and then Anatomica followed by All-American. Uh, then came Sugar. Tell Bay us the story Portillo about Sebring, Denise. He was actually passed in as a yearling and you, you bought him after the sale for 130000 I did. Look, we went to the Magic Minions and he was a lovely colt. My worry was that at the time, sounds nonsense now, but at the time, more than that, he hadn't been so successful. He was brought to Australia, you know, initially, I think, as a you know, producer of speed horses, and he produced a derby winner for Lee Friedman called Benicio, mm-hmm. but not a lot of others, and his dam was a 17-start maiden, but really liked the cops. So went back to the breeder, to George Altamonte, asked if he would think about you know, 120, 125,000. He said no. He wanted 150. I went back to the barn the following day and the cop was still there and I said, I'll give you 130 for him. Done. But the problem with him was initially not many people even wanted to talk about him, let alone buy a share because of more than ready not being popular and the mother was a 17-star maiden. So I put him back on the market early in August that year and equine influenza hit the end of end of August, mm-hmm. and we had no racing in Sydney for all of September, October, November. So it took a very long time for people to come together and race him. And by the time he came back into the stables in the city at the beginning of December, we had an idea from the farm that the horse could really gallop. And he went to the races on what would normally have been 
from 2008 Magic Millions Day, but it was at Rose Hill that year because all of the sales and the carnival races were put back a bit later because of AI. And he won at Rose Hill on the, on his first start. And I remember Gay saying to me, I think this is a golden slipper horse. Well, that to me was just sort of fantasy land. I couldn't have imagined that, mm. you know, I'd have a colt that might be a golden slipper horse. Then he won the long road plate, breeders plate. And breeders started to inquire about, you know, buying him. Well, it was new to me because most of the male horses I'd had had been gilded. Suddenly I've got a good quality colt. So the whole journey from first starting early January until his last start in the Champagne was just extraordinary. It seemed to happen in a hurry. You know, six starts, wins five and gets beaten, you know, short half head by the great Samantha Miss. And it was just great that we had a number of people involved in the ownership with um, good finance and business acumen. And they were able to meet with a committee of the owners and yours truly to negotiate with the studs and we didn't pay a lot of money for the horse and he went there and stood very successfully for not a lot of years and sadly he passed away relatively young well you know not youngish but he still had four or five years I'm sure at least of work to do and he died about four or five years ago. Mm. I don't think it's any secret you sold him after his career as a racehorse to Witten Stud for 28 million dollars at the time he didn't mm. race as a three-year-old. Did they make the decision to retire him? Or what was the story regarding his only six-start career? Well, two things happened. When he came back as a three-year-old, he had a minor issue with um, one of his knees. I think if I remember at the time, it wasn't significant. But whether or not the owners were prepared to take the risk and you know race on with him, I don't recall at the time. I think it was simply that he was a very valuable product and... You know, rather than take the risk that something would happen, they were happy to take the offer. And then, you know, if they wanted to keep a small share in the horse in each case, they could have. Mm. But um, he went to stud and, you know, even to this day, he regularly appears on the most successful stallions in the past week, in the past month. And his oldest horses now are five and six. So, you know, it's just a shame that he couldn't continue on for a bit longer. But he had a heart attack and um, when he wasn't working, it was in February, and I remember coming home from Victoria. I'd been in Victoria, Fort Caulfield, for a race day, and then I got the call on the way back to the airport to say it had happened. And it was a you know telling blow for everybody, not only because of his success, but he was just a lovely cult. Denise, we're going to run out of time. I just want to um, ask about a few different um, a few different horses. And and also a few different things I've got noted down. In 2013-14, you approached Chris Waller to be your, your head trainer, and that's been a great success. Um, one horse that you've had a, a lot of fun with, and I want to ask about this day. You nearly beat Winks with a horse called Fox Play uh, in the Group 2 Warwick Stakes. Now, this was... This was, I'm, I think I'm right in saying, this was the closest any horse ever got to Winks when she started her winning sequence. Anthony, I can remember it very well. I was going through the tunnel at Randwick, and Greg Radley said to me, what will you do if you beat her? Mm. And I said, I've given that no thought at all because that won't be happening. <laughs> so as we got to, you know, of course we all know Winks missed the start. And as they got to about 100, I remember um, grabbing the arm of Emma Cully with whom I work and I said, she's going to run out of time. What am I going to say? And I mm. thought I'm going to be the most hated person in world racing. And she just got there on the line. So... 
I don't ever remember owners being as proud as they were that day for running second, but it was a great thrill to, you know, to give Winx the fight of her life and, you know, our little city ran you know, out of her skin and subsequently won her group one. So she was sold to stud and is doing a nice job too. She ultimately won a group one queen of the turf. Another horse I wanted to ask about, and you're a proud Tasmanian. You mentioned that off the top, East Ender. He was a terrific yeah. horse for your uh, for your syndicate. You purchased him for twenty two thousand. He ended up winning a, a Hobart and Launceston Cup in two thousand and nineteen. That must have made you so proud, Denise. Oh well, it was. A, I didn't intend that. You know, we'd have a, a top line horse. I just thought uh, here's a not expensive a colt, um, and I thought he might actually be a two year old. Well, that didn't happen. We couldn't run out of sight early. But once we knew that he had some stamina capacity, he broke a 43-year record in Tassie by winning all of the major cups in one year. And only about a fortnight ago, he's relocated to Craig Newitt's property in Victoria and become a riding horse with Craig and his family. So we're really pleased that he's gone to a lovely home where, you know, he's much loved and admired. How terrific. Hey, um, there's a couple of questions I wanted to ask you. I read a quote um, from one of your, or you, you mentioned this in an article that I read um, from a mentor of yours, Tommy Smith, back in the day. He gave you some early advice at the sales, which was go early and go hard in your in your um, approach to the, to the sales. Uh, talk us through that. Well, Tommy always said, if you like lot one, buy it. Mm. And I said, okay, I will. And I said to him, what do I need to know about you know buying the horses? And he said, he said to me, um, just ask them, do you have the dollars and what does the wife say? Well, you couldn't ask the latter anymore. <laughs> Very good. And and talk me through your purple and white silks. Where do they come from? Well, they were gays. And um, the the second Pharaoh Doncaster ah, of course. was won by um, Pharaoh in those colours. And the late Pauline Blanche, who worked with Tommy for a very long time, I think came up with the colours. So when I started my business and we came up with the name Star, they said, well, you should use my colours. And I said, well, you know, I'll use them as a loan set of colours. But um, no, they've been Star colours for a very long time now. And I always think when we have two or three runners in a race, um, you know, we have a purple cap for the second runner we do have a second set of colors mm. which we've used from time to time but it's really lovely when you've got colors that you know speak for themselves as a brand and so uh, i'm really proud of the colors and they're very good well you would know better than i but i think race callers tell me they're good to call because they stand out they do they do as a race crawler i can absolutely confirm that they're terrific listen denise we're going to run out of time we've gone half an hour or so and we've got to get to some other commitments it's been my pleasure to catch up with you on monday's experts thanks so much for your time congratulations on all your success and i look forward to crossing paths with you at the races sometime soon many thanks anthony thank you